Hi, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports History and Today Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Daniel Levy, the author of Manhattan Phoenix, The Great Fire of 1835, and The Emergence of Modern New York. This is his second book, and he's reported for Time Magazine and People Magazine. Thanks so much for being here, Mr. Levy. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Before we start our interview, I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support. In keeping the show going, go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity that promotes children's literacy. Type in 25 Beaver Street to Google Maps, and you can see it's closer to the FDR than it is to the West Side Highway, and about four blocks or so from Battery Park. Click on the street view on Google Maps, and you can see it's one of many, many narrow streets lined by buildings that would be the highest in almost any other major city. There's a noodle place, a deli, a Burger King, plenty of construction there right now, and of course, plenty of people. Daniel Levy's book explores how a fire on that block, which was named something different 187 years ago, paved the way for New York to become a modern powerhouse. The fire that leveled 700 buildings started the night of December 16, 1835. So, Daniel Levy, what would we have seen if we were on the same block on a typical day of that year? Uh, the area would have been a lot less dense. You would have had two, three-story buildings. Um, this was just south of Wall Street. Um, actually, it was called Garden Street or Merchant um, Place back then. Garden, Garden Street, there was a church, the Garden Street Church. It was a Dutch Reformed church. Um, you had lots of uh, merchants who had businesses there. Uh, big uh, shipping companies would have their businesses there. There weren't many in that sort of actual area um, residential people, though there are, were there, there were homes. You had homes more to the um, west and the east, and of course north. Um, but New York at this point, you have to remember, was just Manhattan. Um, Manhattan Island, not even most of it, um, the populated part of the city went up to maybe about 14th Street. You had uh, villages throughout uh, the city. You had Greenwich Village, of course, which was a separate uh, community. You had Harlem, you had Yorkville, you had a lot of uh, Bloomingdale, you had a lot of places which don't, which are only remembered now by name. Um, it was only a few hundred thousand people in the city. Um, it wasn't mostly paved, and actually some of those places, uh, Beaver was actually just a little bit south of where the fire started, but Beaver actually used to be a um, canal. Uh, when the Dutch came in in the early 1600s, they, there was lots of streams and waterways and large ponds, and they uh, liked the idea of canals, and they actually converted some of them to canals. So Beaver Street was a canal, as was Broad Street. It was Hergraft and Prinzgraft, which was Graft was... Uh, is canal, and um, eventually uh, things were quite filthy. They would they dump stuff in the waters and they pave them over, and eventually you got the streets, and these streets still run. When did the name go from uh, Beaver or Mer Merchant Street to Beaver Street, or Merchant to actually, Beaver? No, no, Which it was actually not, it, it was all Merchant. It was Beaver merchant. was just south of there. Okay. Um, it's the, the the streets were after the fire partly um, redone. Um, and um, slightly different uh, patterns. So this would have been in the in the eight, late 1830s where streets were really getting changed at this point. Uh, today, we're used to an industrialization of firefighting. Um, it has been, you can't say the word perfect, but it has certainly been perfected over the many years since then. In this country, thankfully, firefighters endure months of training, if not years of training. There are regulations around the equipment, there are standards for response times. Trucks can get firefighters anywhere in just a matter of a few minutes. There are, of course, fire hydrants everywhere that are functioning, which is important for this story. Um, there's unlimited water. Um, and there are alarms, for instance, in my house that automatically call 911 if there's a fire, even if I'm not home. Um, I don't even have to be here to start the fire response. But back then in 1835, 
What was the threat of fire like and what was firefighting like? Uh, the threat of fire was quite was was it was horrible. Um, first of all, you have to remember when you think of construction nowadays, um, you have stone, you have other materials which maybe hopefully won't won't burn. You had buildings mostly built of wood. Uh, you had uh, homes were heated by fireplaces. You had careless smokers. You had oil lamps. Um, there was no, in a sense, uniform fire department like we have now. It was all a volunteer fire department, which you could think of as more as a loose assembly of fraternities who uh, the men sort of fought against each other at times. They would, they would race to fires and to be the first one there and there's sometimes fight along the way they might cover fire hydrants so their competing competing houses couldn't get to them um they were sometimes and, and why did they people. compete was that to was that to make a few bucks or was that for glory no, it was all volunteer it was all manly it was all sort of you know my my firehouse is better than your firehouse <laughs> and you know the men also refused they wanted to show how manly they were they refused to for decades later even to use horses to pull these wagon, these fire uh, trucks. And you have to remember the there was no, um, the pressure was built up. You basically this thing called brakes with these long handles on each side. You would have like six or seven men on each side pumping them up and down. And it was uh, pretty strenuous work. You could be knocked out after a minute or two and the guys would lay off and others would join in and they would get the stream of water going. Uh, you mentioned fire hydrants. Um, the um, what we think of as a New York water system was actually just, they decided to do earlier in that year, early 1835, the Croton system wasn't created until 1842. So you really had to rely on a small reservoirs in the city, wells and river water. So when you have the great fire, you actually had them snake hoses all the way down to the East river to get water. Um, and there were scouts, right? There were people who literally stood around watching for fires from high vantage points. Yeah, there was there was a there were there was somebody in the city hall cupola, which is still there, and they would ring bells. And there wasn't any sort of you know electronic even telegraph system really at this point. They would have different bells telling you which different ward or where it was. And sometimes it, you had people going to the wrong way. way. <laughs> you would have to have somebody running after them saying, "No, no, turn around. It's the other way." Uh, it was it was crazy. You had you had and you had devastating fires where dozens, hundreds of buildings. Sometimes, you know, you had you had of course two great fires during the Revolutionary War. One of them burnt five hundred buildings. Um, I do have a question about that in a second, but I want to ask. Um, we've covered on this show numerous race riots that occurred during the eighteen thirties around America, not necessarily in New York. Um, there was immigration during that era. We also have covered on this show how Andrew Jackson shaped American politics um, during that era. Where was America in 1835 and how did New York City fit into that story? Uh, this was the sort of the Jacksonian era. Um, and it really was a period where you have the expansion of voting rights, of suffrage, but it was really for white men. Uh, used to have to be a property owner or else have a certain amount of cash to have the right to vote. But there were changes in New York State's constitution in the 1820s, which expanded the right to vote to anybody who was a resident for six months a year, whatever the period was. And these were really, a lot of them were sort of by the bootstraps guys who, you know, the, 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 we're, you know, we have our rights type of thing. Uh, thing. But at the same time, you talk about race, at the same time, while they expanded suffrage to whites, they put more restrictions on black voting. So blacks, while the whites no longer needed uh, property qualifications or money, blacks needed about $250 to vote. And even if you had it, you oftentimes were chased away from the polls. So you would just have, you know, just a handful of blacks at this point. Also, a year before the Great Fire, you talk about race riots, there were um, anti-abolitionist riots in New York. This was a period called um, the year of the riots. There were riots all over the place. And there were fears um, that um, of things called um, amalgamation, sort of inter intermarriage between whites and blacks, uh, fear of uh, blacks taking jobs. And also you have to remember that New York was very much, in a sense, almost a Southern city. It had very close ties to the Southern economy because so much of the cotton uh, 
that was uh, grown came through New York and would go off to Europe and then products from Europe, from England will come back to New York. So there was a point at which um, in this period where New York merchants might make 40 cents on every dollar of Southern cotton. What was politics like in New York back then? Um, who ran the show? Um, and we'll answer that first. Who ran the show in New York? What was it like? Um, you had up until this point, it was, it was the growth of Tammany. Um, you had, of course, you had the Democrats, you had the Whigs. Uh, you would have, uh, unlike nowadays, of course, you would have things like election riots. We would never hear of things like that or people fighting over the polls or claiming that other side was stealing or no, not You'd stealing, be surprised. You'd be surprised. <laughs> you imagine that happening nowadays. Um, you had, um, I think it was in the, in the Sixth Ward, which was called the Bloody, uh, the Bloody Sixth. Um, people might know it through a fictionalized version called Gangs of New York, which a lot, a lot of that was sort of, you had these, 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 these groups there where um, I think in one election, there was 10,000 more votes than there were registered voters. Um, so you had the different parties really fighting over um, control of the, um, the Common Council. And of course, you know, um, New York State, though, really looked down on Manhattan. Um, you had much more conservative government in the uh, for the state government than the local government and there were constant struggles which really come out and you have more riots resulting from that just two decades later what was uh, what was the skyline like uh, what would you have seen if you were coming in for instance uh, from where liberty island is now or from the southern tip of manhattan which is where most of new york was you'd, you'd see you'd see a built-up city but as i said it would be like two three stories um it was really more in the 1840s where you started getting higher, taller and taller construction. And of course, you soon had cast iron buildings, which was you were able to build buildings a lot higher with a lot less um, structural foundation on the bottom. Uh, the tallest buildings would be church spires. And Trinity was, I think, the tallest building at one point. Trinity, um, still there. The building dates from 1846 by the great architect Richard Upjohn. It's on Broadway and the end of the western end of Wall Street. Um, you had uh, Grace Church was actually the previous Grace Church. Grace is now on 10th Street, was just a block away. There were other churches. And that, that would have been the, the main thing you'd saw. So I, would, I, was, I was about to ask, what buildings, other than those two buildings or just Trinity, what buildings were there then that are still with us today? You have St. Paul's. Uh, St. Paul's. Um, was built in 1763, John McComb building. Uh, actually, George Washington used to go to services there. Most people forget that New York was the first capital of the United States. You have what's uh, Castle Clinton, which is in the Battery in the Southern End. It dates from just before the War of 1812. And actually, it was on a separate island because so much of downtown Manhattan is landfill. And uh, it, was, it was actually a man-made island. They did. They built the fort there. And of course, War of 1812 didn't come here, really. It was more in Washington and elsewhere. Um, and that eventually was connected to the mainland. Um, City Hall, which is up further, um, dates from about 1804. And that's the original building. And to give you a sense of, of New York development, City Hall is up on Chambers Street. And when it was built in 1804, people figured no one would ever build, you know, live north of of City Hall. So they only faced the south, east, and west side with marble. They put cheaper sort of brownstone on the north side because they figured no one would ever go around to that side to take a look. <laughs> you know, I want to go back there. I've been there many times. Yeah. I need to go back now and look at the back of it. That's pretty darn yeah. funny. And if you go there, there's actually, you, we mentioned Tammany. Right on the other side of it is uh, what's called the Tammany Courthouse. And it was built by um, Tammany Hall, uh, which with lots of kickbacks, uh, Boris Tweed, who you probably all know, was one of the most corrupt politicians ever. And he's uh, in the book uh, as a youngster, he's, right? He's mentioned in the book because he was a councilman back yeah. then. Um, he The building was supposed to cost $250,000 and it was finally finished. The final bill was $12.7 million. Well, so, you gotta you gotta give a lot of kickbacks when you build. A you got a lot like of that, right? he 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 bought a marble quarry, which happened to conveniently supply all the marble. You right, know, right, to, right. To it. Right. 
Um, to that point, what big fires had New York City endured? Uh, you described the Bowery Fire of 1828 that destroyed a theater, um, killed horses. Really sad story. Um, what happened um, in 1828? What was the legacy of that incident? Well, legacy, what I, what I found fascinating about the Bowery Theater, and the, the, I, my book deals with lots of, I tell it through a lot of the people who were there, but I also tell it through one building, which is the Bowery Theater. It's actually four or five buildings because the Bowery Theater, like so much of New York burned. So the first Bowery Theater was built in 1826. And it was done by a very prominent um, Connecticut architect who came down to New York, became one of the biggest architects in the country, Ithiel town. Uh, but it burned down in 1828 and it burned down like three, four more times before the Civil War. Um, many of these were started by, you know, they were uh, props during a show, what have you, you know, some gun wadding or something, which they were using in some, some play, uh, caught fire and burnt. And you had buildings and these, 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 these fires would just take out lots of other, other things. Actually, the first Barry fire was started nearby in a, in a stable, but the winds blew these things. And by the time, of course, the firemen came, um, you know, these, these things were, were burning like crazy. You had, of course, those two big fires I mentioned during, mentioned during the revolution. Uh, they were suspicious fires, possibly set by American revolutionaries. It was one right after the, the, uh, the colonials, no longer colonials, the Amer Americans fled uh, lower Manhattan, and you've actually Washington up in um, in Harlem Heights, sort of around the area of um, probably Columbia, sort of, you know, writing to his cousin saying, you know, good luck or maybe some good patriots started this. That burnt down 500 buildings. It was one of two years later, which burnt down quite a few more. You had other fires, which would just take out 120 buildings at a shot. Um, there was actually in 1835, right before the Great Fire, which I go into, there was one down, uh, which took out dozens of dozens of buildings and put lots of people out of out of work. Um, mm -hmm. This was just a constant problem. You would have fires almost all the time. People, visitors were always talking about Dickens, talked about how the fact that you're constantly hearing church uh, uh, fire bells going off. Mm -hmm. Take us to the morning of December 16th, 1835, freezing cold. I can almost feel the snow and the wind whipping through the skyscrapers off the river, right? If the skyscrapers had been there. Yeah. Um, there had been fires the day before. Um, uh, what was it like that morning with people getting over the hangover of having to have had put out fires just a few hours before? There were, there were two fires right before. And the problem was that you had a reservoir um, further uptown, which had maybe 200,000 gallons, whatever it held, and it was pretty much depleted And uh, to put these fires out. The firemen were probably exhausted. This cold snap had gone on for possibly two weeks. It was so cold, it actually froze um, the Erie Canal. The Erie Canal had been started, which really helped set New York on its course to becoming the Empire State. Uh, so you had traffic which wasn't flowing. You had the rivers were, were frozen. It was bitterly cold out. And uh, there wasn't much going on that night. Of course, New Yorkers loved the theater and you had people in the Bowery Theater. Actually, uh, John Wilkes Booth's father was performing, if I remember correctly, up at the Bowery um, that night. Um, and you had... Um, city city watch people there weren't really a police force people new yorkers americans were really sort of distrustful of uh state militias and police because it's one of the reasons for the revolution they didn't want um organized armies in that sort of way but you had city watch people who, whose job it were to really look for fires and also sort of check out the potter's fields which were sort of the uh, burial places for the poor uh, to make sure no one was stealing bodies, uh, where you had riots over that at one point. Uh, it was quite quiet, and you had these two um, watchmen who smelled smoke, and they came up on this fire at Comstock and Andrews, and they opened the door, and the, just the entire inside was a flame. It was a gas fire that got started, and as one of them says, we, we quickly closed the door. And um, the, the fellows manning 
City Hall and elsewhere quickly set off the alarm and you actually had fire companies racing down from all over. Uh, the fire chief, James Gullick, uh, who oversaw this loose confederation, was one of the first people down there. And they quickly set up their um, engines and they tapped the hydrants. They also ran hoses down to the river. And unfortunately, you had these major winds. It was freezing cold out. You had these major winds. Uh, which made fighting fires really hard. So as they're pumping the water, actually the wind is blowing this ice cold water back into their face at times. And the fire um, on Merchant Street quickly burst through uh, windows and it spread. Um, this Merchant Street, if you think about Lower Manhattan, this was sort of near Hanover Square, which is still around. So we're talking about the Eastern side, more the east uh, Eastern side towards Pearl Street in that area. And you had... Um, in no times you had 20, 30 buildings aflame, more fire companies came. And this thing just was a, it was a, per, it was a perfect storm of, of fire. You had, you had the cold, you had freezing. Uh, it, it was the hoses froze, right. You had, you had hoses freezing and actually within about two hours or so you have, they had to actually stop using hoses because they became like logs. Um, this, you know, the, this isn't like the pressure you have nowadays. These were basically thin, thin cloth, probably hoses, uh, rubber hoses. Um, and where were they pulling the water from? They were pulling them from the hydrants, but unfortunately, the hydrants tapped into the reservoir, uh, which was relatively depleted, and they were pulling it from the. Um, and they actually had to pump it up. They actually had to pump the hydrants. The, well, it would flow to the hydrants, but there was very little pressure leading to the hydrants. They would pump the engines to try to build up the stuff to get onto the onto the fire. They started actually at some at one point. Just they would it was not uncommon for them to soak blankets and try to lie them on roofs and windows and what have you to try to stop it. And at uh, that point, they're just trying to save goods. Yeah, right. Uh, you described the first few minutes of the fire as completely chaotic. Um, Within 15 minutes, the fire engulfed 50 buildings. Uh, what were the people of New York? How did the people of New York react to this fire starting? Some people rushed down there. Um, I have two of my main um, characters, the main diarists, um, who link all the different characters in the book. Uh, one of them was a fellow named Philip Hone, uh, who was one of the great American diarists. He was mayor, actually, for one year. He was one of these patrician um, very wealthy man. He's a friend of John Jacob Astor. His son had a um, had a business down there. He rushed down. He lived up near City Hall, so he rushed down. And the other one was a fellow uh, George Templeton Strong, who was actually a contemporary of Hone's sons. He went to school with one of Hone's sons. He, he his father was um, a prominent lawyer, and he was maybe about fifteen at the time. He had just started at Columbia. And he wrote about it. Um, but people were rushing there. And many of them were rushed, merchants rushing there to try to save their goods. And there was frantic uh, attempts to try to save goods, uh, to move them quickly. And you had, pe you had people rushing into their buildings, which are burning and uh, trying to just save things. Um, I don't know how many people have seen a giant fire. Uh, I have, uh, as part of my job as a news reporter, I've seen many, many fires. I've seen the aftermath of many fires. And it's completely terrifying to see a fire that is out of control and to know that people's lives are at stake and to know that their goods are at stake. I mean, even just losing everything you have is a, an incredibly traumatic and awful experience. Um, I want to read a quote um, that describes what this fire was like so people can get a sense of the power that we're dealing with here. Um, the quote is, an ocean of fire, roaring, rolling, burning waves, surging onward and upward and spreading certain universal destruction, tottering walls and falling chimneys with black smoke, hissing, crashing sounds on every side. Why did you think it was important to include that quote? It was a contemporary quote, someone who saw it, and to give a sense of how widespread this fire, the fire eventually covered uh, an area probably the size of um, what was destroyed in the World Trade Center. It went pretty much from Broad Street uh, to the river and from Wall Street down to, to Coentis uh, Slip. Uh, it was just a vast area. And you have to remember, it also it was very narrow streets. It was very hard to get through. 
So you, you would sometimes have burning walls of fire in each side. There was, um, there was as I talk about, one, one of the merchants got up on the roof uh, of one of the buildings to sort of see this, and it was just devastating what he saw. What were your sources for this book? I love to ask this question because I love to hear where authors, um, how they cultivate their books and where they get everything from. Uh, so what papers did you go through? Was it newspaper accounts? Was it, I know you mentioned a couple of diarists. Um, are there, were there maps? You know, what research was there? Um, what did you discover that was new? And um, where were all these archives and documents? I spent quite a long time. I worked on this book for a long time. I was supposed to. How many years? It. Five years? Ten years? Well, I was supposed to finish it in two, and it was about a dozen years. <clears throat> so uh, it's a it's a beefy book. It's great. Yes, and also I have a you know a full time job. Um, yeah. But it also what I and I thankfully was blessed with a very patient editor who knew what I was doing, what I was trying to do, and this, of course, the fire is just. A small part of the book. It's really about how the different forces within New York that were playing out at this time, things like fire and water and land and trade, what have you, really created the modern city and how this was this one moment in time, which really sort of helped spark everything that went along with it. Uh, but I spent years triangulating the fire. And I went through, as you said, uh, diarists like Philippone and George Templeton Strong, letters, newspaper accounts, there were maps. Um, lot, um, James Gordon Bennett, who started the great uh, New York Herald uh, just that year, um, covered the fire. And actually, right after the fire, he went out and he did a form of uh, reportage, which was unheard of at the time. And now, of course, it's quite common. But he walked around um, what became known as the Burnt District and really in like 4,000 something words, really wrote about what he saw, what was going on around him, of merchants weeping, of people digging through um, uh, remains of their buildings. You had, basically, you had some people, they would stand where their building was and they couldn't, there was not, not only no building there, there was nothing to the shoreline. They just had open vista. Um, there were some accounts written about it yeah, after people cataloged what went on. There was, you know, 600 or 674 buildings which were destroyed in this fire. Um, it devastated this lower part of the city. Um, I read through lots of uh, papers. Thankfully, um, some of them, they actually can get hard copies of them. You go to the New York Historical Society. Some things have not been uh, digitized or microfilmed. I went through lots of microfilm. But also um, you can get these, you know, broadsheets, bound broadsheets of things like the New York American, um, the New York Evening Post, of course, the Herald and, and what have you. And um, what I, I love is that sort of serendipity of going through newspapers where you're looking at one thing and also your eye catches on the other side and you realize, oh, I can use this elsewhere. Um, and how was the quality of the reporting that you went through? As a reporter, you're you've written for Time magazine and and others. And um, what was it like to read their co contemporary accounts? And did you find them useful and responsible? I found the fire ones pretty useful. Um, other times they were not. You could really see the bias in the writing, especially when they talked about, say, race relations. Um, you had you know the abolitionist riots, which was just the year before the fire, and depending on which paper. You have you have them talking about either the the, the white mobs or the they were blaming the blacks. Of course, the blacks did nothing to cause all this, and they talked about how they were ready to burn down the city, which was which was nonsense. Uh, go ahead. Yes, yeah, sorry. Um, there, um, in politics, you especially see because a lot of them, a lot of the papers had very clear political ties, and they would support they would support their candidate, and they would of course, always attack the other side. Um, so you have to take lots of stuff with a grain of salt um, and really sort of, you know, sift through it to try to figure out things. But thankfully for the fire, and there was tons of coverage. And of course, also quite a few newspapers were put out of business um, as, were, as were insurance companies by this fire. But people did sort of resurrect. Because they their lost business. their offices? Yeah, they were burnt down. They yeah. would have to be relocated. 
Yeah. Um, uh, James Goyne Bennett was very lucky. Uh, he, he wasn't and actually went to great expense. He actually ran a woodcut, wood engraving, actually, of the Merchants Exchange, which was the, the grandest building at the time, the sort of the remains of it, the shell of it. And he also ran a map and he went to great expense, but this really gave us people a sense of, of the fire. Um, there was actually also a lawsuit. I went through um, um, uh, depositions of uh, witnesses because uh, to stop the fire, they had to actually blow up buildings to create fire breaks. Um, which, you know, they create fire breaks. You think about you think about forest fires. They try to yeah. clear an area so the fire won't spread. They try to do the same things here with buildings. And actually, the first building was blown up by James Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton's son. He was the U.S. attorney. And he was the guy who said, we just got to build, blow up these buildings. And he set up the, 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 the um, gunpowder. Um, but um, I just lost my train of thought. No, no, that, that, that's okay. So, um, the, I, I mean, the, you know, the next question I had was the cause of the fire. Uh, how close were they able to get to nailing this down? It was, it was a gas fire. There were, there were, they had gas, you know, gas uh, had arrived in New York uh, the decade before or so. And um, it was a gas leak and it just started fire. If um, so, eventually, so the fire burns out in how long? Well, it was finally the main fire was put out by, you know, six, seven in the morning, it went for about 10 hours. Um, so let's say seven in the morning, but there were other fires that from it that were starting up because things would smolder and then break out again once oxygen got in there. So for a few days they were fighting it. And of course you talked about firemen being exhausted. These guys were just, were just completely wiped out. And thankfully you had fire companies coming from uh, Brooklyn. They would take ferries across from Newark. You even had fire companies. You had fire, the, the fire was so pronounced. You talk about the ocean of fire that they could see the glow in the sky in Philadelphia and New Haven. So you had fire companies that night in Philadelphia running out of their firehouses thinking, oh, the suburbs just north of us, there's a fire, let's find it. And they couldn't find it because it was, was in New York. It was you gotta jump on the they gotta jump on the turnpike and uh, they gotta get on the the, the, the the turnpike or the you know the garden state to get yeah right there. um the uh the aftermath I asked you about the morning of the 16th let's talk about the morning of the 17th if you were to go out and walk through the rubble and through the wreckage what would we have seen um it, it hearing about it reading about it in your book reminded me of 9 11 uh, half a billion dollars in those days is a lot of money that's how much damage there was. Uh, 17 blocks destroyed, 700 buildings. Uh, what was the aftermath? What did people wake up to? They woke up. They felt this was the wrath of God. It was utter devastation. Um, buildings were that were once there were no longer there. It was very hard to get through streets because you had rubble from the buildings there. You had uh, streets were filled with uh, destroyed merchandise. Because you remember, people have when the fire was going on, people were trying to save what they could and stuff was getting damaged as they went. Uh, Cause you would, they would sometimes pile, they piled up tons of stuff and say Hanover square. And then the fire came through and burnt everything. So you just have a mass of, of burnt um, merchandise lying around. You had, you had weeping merchants. You had uh, the few families that lived in that area. They might be huddling. You had lots of, um, uh, young men and uh, boys who might saw little fires with, you know, rich mahogany furniture to keep warm. They were sometimes throwing tea. So you had very sweet smelling Heisen tea fires and what have you. It was, um, people really felt like this was, they, you know, people were rushing to churches. There was a rebuke from God because they were seen as being too worried about money and stuff. And two people were killed. Who were those people? Just two people. Um, don't, really know yeah uh, just a handful of people died uh they it, it was very fortunate in that way that there were no you know it wasn't of course like the world trade center which was just a few blocks away where you know two three thousand people died yeah um so the immediate relief effort how did new york come together in the short term before we get to the long term and the crux of your book which is how this paved the way for New York to succeed in future generations. What was the short-term effort like to recover? It, you don't have you don't have FEMA and stuff like you have nowadays. Um, you had 
basically the mayor called a meeting and 150 top merchants and citizens gathered and they divided them up into little groups to, you know, to some people to approach the federal government, some people to approach Albany, what have you. Philippone, my diarist, uh, was the group that went to went to uh, Albany and they got a couple million dollars in aid. They got the federal government to hold off on payments um, for, to the treasury. Uh, you had um, the second bank of the United States, which of course Jackson soon after destroyed, they um, agreed to help. Um, you had other cities sending money. Um, the thing was that New York was still seen as very, as, as a viable, uh, important place. And you have rebuilding that restarted right away. Um, one of the, my main characters is Arthur Tappan. Him and his brother, Lewis, were... It was fun to hear the, some of the familiar names. You know, of course, we know the Tappan Z Bridge. Tappan uh, Z actually is, is Indian. Tappan ah. Z, Z is Dutch for C. So it was the Tappan C ah. because it was so wide. Um, no, the Tappans is just coincidental. Oh, Tappan, funny. Okay, I'm glad I know that. Tappan, I'm a font of useless information. <laughs> um, uh, the Tappan brothers were from... Uh, from Massachusetts, if I remember correctly, sorry. Um, and they made a fortune. They were multi-billionaires in today's dollars in silk trade. And they were very big in uh, good works. They were major abolitionists fighting um, prostitution, you know, uh, temperance. They were fighting, they were not fighting, they were for temperance, I should say. And uh, his, his, business was on Hanover Square. And actually, um, when the fire started, a lot of his uh, workers rushed in to help bring out stuff, and they quickly moved a lot of part of his stock out. And also a lot of uh, Blacks who realized that their, um, the man who was really working for their rights and their freedoms was in danger of losing his business. And you had African Americans running in to help save, save goods. His store was, of course, completely leveled. Um, he had moved his stuff. He actually moved it twice because when they moved it to, uh, I think, Beaver Street initially, that building was then threatened and then they moved it further on. Um, he met with uh, his brother and his other partners the next morning and they said, we're going to rebuild right away. His building actually, the initial one was done by the architect who did the Bowery Theater. Uh, they got it, uh, just a builder to build a new building and within no time, his new store was open. Others were building like crazy and land uh, started going for a lot of money, empty, empty lots. The, the, the Dutch reformed church I mentioned for went for two, three hundred thousand dollars, which was an unheard of uh, amount of money for this for an empty lot of land. And people started building right away. There was also a move to try to widen, straighten out the streets. There was some of it. There wasn't much. It wasn't you've. If you think about New York, you think of New York as a grid. Uh, the New York grid really starts on Houston Street, which is a mile or so north of here. And that was all started in um, 1811. So the plan in New York, New York was really the, the ultimate um, real estate boomtown, was really started um, north of here. But, and this is what, and of course, as people started, merchants started rebuilding, but then also moving north, you then have the massive development of land which took off at this point, which was one of the, the great forces. Yeah. So, so explain how this fire starts to pave the way, not only for the geography of New York to change, but for its economy to change, for its politics to change, and for its people to change. The fire uh, was, as I said, one of the, one of the catalysts for the, uh, the growth. Um, you have, as I said earlier that year, they decided to build a reservoir and this really or an aqueduct system, I should say, and a reservoir, which really, the fire really pushed them along saying, we really have to do this. And they really started work on it um, the, just the year after the fire. And they actually built an aqueduct, which came from the Croton, they built a, uh, from the Croton River, they built an aqueduct, a, a reservoir up there, and a 40 mile long aqueduct, uh, which was, which revolutionized New York because it, it gave a proper water system, which of course helped with fighting fires. Uh, you still had the independent firehouses, but they had much more water all of a sudden. And you had merchants who um, the city was growing, had been growing 
with the um, Erie Canal, which got started 10 years earlier, and money coming in. And even though you have right after the fire, there was a major depression, a panic of 1837, which really slowed everything across the country. Um, once that was over, within seven years or so, uh, things really started to explode. And you have um, hotels being built. Uh, the year after the fire, John Jacob Astor, who lived um, next to Philippone, just up Broadway, uh, built the Astor House Hotel, which was one of the first really great hotels. And others saw the uh, money that could be made in housing visitors. So, was the fire a psychological change, um, a kick in the a kick in the butt to get things moving, um, a motivation, or was it a um, was did it set off practical changes in what the city had was forced to become? It did all of them, and it, it did all of those, and some of them took, of course, longer than possible. There were complaints about the fire department, uh, which came. You know, the firemen were, of course, initially seen as heroes, but uh, people started to blame them really soon after. Uh, Gullick, the fire chief, was fired uh, the following May, and there were constant calls for reform of the fire department, and, of course, it took another 30 years. Uh, but the sort of modern municipal non-volunteer fire department started. Um, there were calls, there were slow calls for uh, building uh, construction changes, um, how buildings, you know, like part, buildings next to each other be party walls versus say a uniform sort of wall. Um, there were just lots of, lots of changes. Um, why was the Civil War a bookend for your book? Why did you find that a good place to kind of say, okay, this is where this big transformation has kind of taken the city from the Jacksonian era into a new era? And then, of course, you saw Great Division during the Civil War. But why did you find that to be the right bookend for you? I actually initially, talk about changes in book, initially was going to go up to just the opening of Central Park, which was just a year or so before uh, the Civil War. But there were all these forces which were really sort of playing out and I really had to talk about. And of course, you have Central Park, one of the major um, members of the U.S. Sanitary Commission. If you think of the modern day Red Cross, these were, uh, this was a um, group which was really bringing medical aid to soldiers during the Civil War. One of the main people in that was Frederick Law Olmsted, who, of course, built the park and it was organizational quality. Um, New York, uh, so what I liked sort of visual, not visually, but sort of that, that sense of New York going from really fire to rebirth. So you have this devastating fire and other devastating fires which lead through this period. And then you have this flowering of, of New York and the changes that happened because at this point, talking about parks, when the street pattern was laid out just before the fire in 1811, or 20 years earlier, there were very few parks planned for New York. And as the city was really just economically booming and the streets were being laid out, you have during this period, uh, the Northern part of New York, say from say 14th street, within 30 years, you have um, buildings up to the, six, to the 60s. So you have buildings going up um, miles, miles from where the, the fire was and from 14th street. And there was a sense of New York that they were just too much building was going on, too much development was going on. We had to, of course, try to save the city. And they, of course, some visionaries decided we're going to build a park, a park in the middle of the city. And the park, in a way, stopped development in that area, but also increased development along the sides and really made New York a very different city than what it had been. Um, there were other forces you have. Leading up to the Civil War, of course, you have the uh, fight over slavery, the abolitionist fight with people like Tappan and others. And this was really the beginning of um, a period where, where people were really saying, we have to, you know, we have to do something mm -hmm. about slavery. Of course, if you think about slavery, there was slavery in New York until 1827. People don't really realize that. And even when slavery ended, um, Blacks were really sort of second, third class citizens. Mm -hmm. What would a proper monument or memorial to the fire look like if you could design one? 
I never thought about that. Um, I I would I would like I would like to see some area of maybe reconstruction of of, of what was there before. You know, they're not going to give a block or so. Ah, yeah, right. But something like the Merchants Exchange. I I, don't, I wouldn't want I wouldn't want a devastation fire. You know, um, some sort of um, ghost memorial in a way. There's a wonderful um, building in Philadelphia by uh, the great architect Robert Venturi, Pritzker winner. Um, which is a silhouette of, of Benjamin Franklin's old house business. And it's really just think of a, a quick sketch of a house with no windows or anything. And it's, it's, you can kind of walk through it in the sense that this was once here and mm. this once took up this space. And this was once and this once and still is important. Uh, the art, the artwork of fire. When you look at the paintings of different fires, um, is it propaganda or is it evocative? Is it accurate? It's, it's, um, people were trying to memorialize uh, what happened right away. Um, there was a painter who thankfully did these beautiful gouaches of the fire, different views of the fire from Brooklyn Heights, um, and then of, uh, of the fire raging from elsewhere, say down in the harbor, uh, along with uh, street scenes. And um, People were really interested in a certain way. You know, I, I remember I watched the World Trade Center as it burned. and, and um, How close building. were you? I was, um, had gotten on the train. Uh, I live in, we had just moved to New Jersey and the trains were stopped in Newark. And when we got on the train, people started saying somebody just flew a plane into the Trade Center. And I actually took out, being the journalist I am, I actually took out my laptop and I just started writing what was going on around me about the people, about what they were talking about. And it was this gorgeous day. And we got out at, at Broad Street and you could see the two towers in the distance with this, you know, miles long plume of smoke. And I had just had lunch, I think the day before with a childhood friend who had actually, um, was best man at his wedding. And he worked on the 77th floor. He, he survived, thankfully. He, he walked down. And got made it across to the um, South Street before the buildings fell, but um, they said no one's obviously going into the city, and they pulled another train to go back west. And as the train was pulling out, I looked out the back window, and I could just start to see the first building crumbling and going down. And then, but of course, then you know I worked in the city. Worked um, time uh, used to be up at Rockefeller Center, and I remember going down to the trade center and just all the people around. And the, the thing that struck me um, heartrending the most was the little uh, posters were put up. Have you seen this person last seen on, you know, the sixth floor or 73rd floor, what have you, please, please, please call. Um, and I remember walking yeah. around the site and just that sense of just devastation and the, the dust this sort of white dust, yeah. uh, dust. I was, uh, I was there about a month later and um, I'd never smelled anything like that before. The pile at that point was still very high, almost, you know, maybe 50, felt like it was 15 stories when you looked up at the pile of rubble. Um, certainly hard memories. Um, the Bronx is burning 9-11 fires in 1776, 1845. There were riots during the Civil War. There was the shirtwaist factory fire. Why do you think it is that fires in New York seem to mark turning points? Oftentimes, they're larger, uh, more devastating. You, you mentioned the, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. That fire brought in changes for um, Craft for building construction. You know, because basically the owners they locked, they chained the doors shut. So the workers couldn't go out for, for breaks and stuff. And these, these women were stuck inside the building. The building is still there. I don't know if people know that it's the Brown building, unless they renamed it. it, was, it I used to have classes when I was a student at NYU in this building. Um, but there were changes um, to, to uh, how, um, how they built things. And also even where, how people lived, you know, there was the General Slocum fire, uh, which was a, um, paddle wheel boat 
um, that would take people, you know, on trips and what have you. And you had um, large German community in in New York on the east side, and a lot of them were going up for a picnic, and the boat caught fire, and lots of people perished. And it was soon after that I think that the German community started to move further north and elsewhere. But but do you think that fires and major disasters like the ones I described are a psychological shift that this unstoppable city suddenly meets something bigger than it can control? Uh, the unstoppable city kept on going. You know, the, the unstoppable city. Um, if you think about September 11th, it was it was utterly devastating. But, you know, we're going to rebuild right away. And they built, you know, the new Freedom Tower. Um, you have this fire that destroys 674 buildings and people just keep saying, we're not going to be stopped. We're not going to, we're not going to be, you know, defeated. Uh, I know this took you a dozen years. Uh, may I ask what's next for you? Have you decided on another book yet, or are you just going to focus on your journalism? Um, they keep me quite busy at, at, at um, what's now dot dash Meredith, which used to be, of course, time. Time Life Books. Sorry, um, are you writing for Time Magazine? Is that what it is? Well, no, I left. I um, I just before the Trade Center, I moved to our sister publication, People Magazine. Mm-hmm. So I just switched floors, and then in 2013, I went over to um, Time Life Books, and I'm still there. But the company has been sold twice: first to uh-huh. Meredith, and then to Dot Dash Meredith. But I still write. Um, life books i work on some of the time life books i work on the entertainment weekly books people magazine books or mm-hmm. especially the really special issues i should say yeah so um, so what's next have you decided on another book yet or no if um, i may ask my wife would like me to take a some time off. <laughs> i'll just I'll, be, I'll just say that a marriage sabbatical yes uh, she has been i'm i'm blessed with a very uh patient and uh wife who you know before this i did a book i spent five years on a book on a english adventure in china and it seemed as if we had this you know jewish chinese general who had taken you know a room in our house and you know she's glad he finally mm. moved out and <laughs> she's glad the fire has moved out all right um daniel levy the author of manhattan phoenix the great fire of 1835 and the emergence of modern new york thanks so much for being here Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Check out the book, which is from Oxford University Press. I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support. In keeping the show going, go to patreon.com slash History. We'll donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports, History, and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks.